When Nelson Mandela was released from prison, him and I sat and he said, music is the velvet glove that delivers your messages of pain, politics and protest in a way that no spoken word will ever, ever do. My guest in this episode of From the Hip hardly needs any introduction, but I'm going to give it anyway. She is one of South Africa's most successful musicians with over 40 years of hit making under her belt and is responsible for some of the most iconic songs in our musical history, including Jabalani. So strong, you're so good to me, World and Union, and many, many more. Singer, philanthropist, author, human rights activist, she's included in the prestigious list of the top 100 great South Africans, one of this country's most recognizable and enduring performers. Indeed, a great pleasure to sit in conversation with PJ Powers. Welcome to the show. Hi, Benj. I'm absolutely fine. Thanks for that. That's a, I don't know how I follow that, but uh, <laughs> I'll take it all. <laughs> Everybody says that. Now, you're a Durban girl. Yes, I am. What was it like growing up in one of the last bastions of the British Empire in the 60s? Um, you know, my parents were were the last bastion of the British Empire, what can I say? I didn't know any difference, so I suppose I just accepted it. Where I was lucky was that I was influenced incredibly lucky with the parents and the grandmother that I had who started the African Children's Feeding Scheme and they were liberals, I used to call them. You know, they were sort of sort of left wing to a point. You know, my, I think my grandmother was a communist, but I was exposed to, you know, that typical colonial upbringing you know I grew up on a farm and I mean it was tennis parties and it was it was all that stuff and that's how I grew up yeah and what sort of musical education did you have at that point I mean, none. Um, none my mother my mother absolutely loved music um, I had a mum that used to walk in and say why is everybody playing the music so softly you know so and I mean my mum bought me my first bad company album so I mean go figure she was she was quite a happening human being she loved music she loved music I had a, a nanny, Lillian, who introduced me to Miriam Makeba and taught me how to do the click. And so I was exposed to, because I was an only child for quite a long time, because my mum had three kids in three years, and then five years later fell pregnant with me. So they all went off to boarding school, and I, I, was, at, I was at home alone with my mum and Lillian, who unfortunately died a couple of months ago, and, and we kept contact right until her uh, passing. And so it was it was that typical life, you know, where I um, sat under a frangipani tree watching my folks play tennis and making necklaces for my mother, you know. That's amazing. And, and singing. I mean, obviously, we're hearing singing, all this constantly, music. Constantly, constantly. We, we had a thatch farm as well in the Drakensberg. And we used to go there. And I loved it there. That's actually where I wrote Wazani Nizotula. So I became very, very in touch, particularly after You're So Good to Me, which, as you know, Benj, was a, a rock song. You know, yeah. it was a, wasn't, yeah. there was no plan to cross over. There really wasn't. But suddenly it became this huge hit on Radio Zulu. I was then exposed to the type of urban township black music that I started to, and I started to realize that I didn't necessarily want all my influences to be American and British, which it, they had been before. Mm. I realized that my voice was always going to be a soul rock voice. There's no getting away from that. That is the voice I have, and that's the voice that I'm very happy with. Mm. I suddenly wanted to put Angus Young and some Mbakanga guitarist together, which you know, or, or drama together. Which worked very well for you. I yeah, mean, absolutely. Uh, so when did the performing bug bite? Where you, when you went, I want to be a singer, I want to be on stage. I mean, was that early? I don't remember ever wanting to be anything else. My sister was incredibly patient, most of the time, not always. But being six years older than me, by the, by the time I was five... Uh, my grandmother was an LTCL. She played in the London Philharmonic Orchestra okay. piano. She was extremely musical. And my sister, I used to walk around the house with a little microphone saying to my sister, please interview me. Because in my head, 
<laughs> when I was five. And I know what my story was. I remember it clearly. I was, I was American because we all had to be American. You know, you had to be, in order to be famous, you had to be American. And so I had an American accent full on. And I was, I was returning to South Africa after a worldwide tour, the United States <laughs> of America, at five. So I'd constantly asked to be interviewed. And I lived this absolute fantasy of being this famous singer. And that's all you wanted to be? That's all I ever wanted to be. Now, in addition to, to Mama Africa, Mary um, mm. uh, McEver, what else was influencing you? Were you listening? Was it radio? Were, I you was mentioned Mad comp- Bad yeah, Company. Bad Company, coming from such a big family. My brothers were listening to the Beatles and to the Rolling Stones, and my sister was listening to, she was coming home from university and lying on the floor depressed listening to Janice Ian. It was quite an eclectic mix of music, and my father couldn't tap his foot in time, but my mother was quite adamant that we were exposed to a sort of across-the-board I didn't hear any Afrikaans, South African Afrikaans music. I lived in Natal. We didn't hear much deep jazz, but we, they, you know, Frank Sinatra was always played in our home. And so there was a broad spectrum of music. Mm. So I've always had quite a schizophrenic love. I love American country. I adore rock I love blues. It all excites me. I mean, if I had to do Desert Island Discs, they would think I was a complete schizophrenic because I, I don't have a genre that I, that I particularly really love. In the beginning, Streisand was a huge influence on me. Right. I saw The Way We Were about 12 times. I was in Standard 5, and I, I just I adored that song. So I was listening to Streisand. And Miriam McCabe, my mum, I didn't used to get a hiding. She would hide my seventh single of the click song if I was naughty and I wasn't allowed to play it for three or four days or something, you know. That was my punishment. So it was a really, really wide open mixture of terribly strict and terribly British, but also quite wild. And mad. The, the British are mad. <laughs> Don't we know that? <laughs> so were you already Were you already going on stage? Uh, yes, I was in all the school plays. Yeah. I was in uh, all the musicals. Uh, we had a great, great carol singing. We had a great choir at the school I went to, and I was a soloist. And But that wasn't the genre I was going to go into. I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't mm. interested in musical theatre, ever. I wasn't interested in being a team player. I wanted to front a rock and roll band. <laughs> <laughs> so you so you leave school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you went to work. I met somebody a couple of weeks ago who said you worked in a bank. My father, he forced me. He said, listen, if you want to do this crazy career, I'll make a, a deal with you that I'm not giving you a cent. I'm not supporting you. You're not getting a car like your brothers and sisters. You're not getting anything unless you work for a year before you do this. And I matriculated early. I had just turned 17, which is a complete waste of time, actually, when I think about it. And I said to him, well, Dad, fair enough, but I know what I want to do. So if you want me to do something else, then please be my guest. Find me a job. And he phoned his bank manager and Mr. Griffiths and said, listen, I've got this way with daughter. You've got to help me. She wants to rush off to Johannesburg and become a rock singer. I don't know what to do with her. So he said, OK, send her in. And my father thought that once I started to earn money, I'd realize the value of money and there'd be the, you know, that whole exchange. Never got it. Uh, and, and I just never got it. And I was in ledgers for, they put me in ledgers. I mean, fuck. And I lasted for a month. And then he phoned my dad and he said, listen, our entire ledger system screwed up. Your, your daughter treats the compartments where you've got to put the checks like a blackjack table, it's just one, 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 one. There's no, like, I, I was mo- not methodical. I didn't do it on purpose. No. I just had no interest. Because your eye was somewhere else, right? Of course. Of so course. you come to Joburg, right? Mm. Would I presume that Panther was the first band you formed? No, no, no. What happened was in, while I was at the bank, I was still putting up signs saying, singer, looking for job, which was such a lie. Because I wasn't a singer. I'd sung in the school plays. I'd never sung through a microphone. Actually, I had at my cousin's wedding. I sang Lena Zavaroni's Mama, He's Making Eyes at Me. Can you believe it? Like belting it. Panther was formed in Durban. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, we were an all-girl band from Durban. We wanted, we desperately, we were in love with Clout, and we, we thought we were going to be the second Clout. They were in their absolute heyday. We came to Johannesburg because we won a talent contest, and the prize was to be managed by Eddie Eckstein. Oh, from the bats? Yeah. Okay. 
We weren't that bad, actually. I don't know whether you remember seeing us. We performed at Woodstock, oh, I know. I know. and there was, there was I, I suppose, there was a lot of, there was a hell of a lot of raw energy there. But we weren't. I mean, we were fired from Cyros. We were fired from the Pied Park Hotel. We were fired. Well, there's from, where I saw yeah, you. Yeah, but, yeah. Because I was told to go and see this band at the old Hyde Park Hotel. Yeah. Called okay, Band-Bow. well, that was my first ever professional gig as a singer where I earned money. Because somebody told me there was a girl that sang like Janis Joplin. Yes, well, that, yeah. That was you, yeah, it right? Yeah, that was me, yeah. And, and I think Debbie Lonman was in the band. No, she wasn't, she in, wasn't, the, she wasn't in the band yet. Yet. Dulcie. Yeah, and Renee was on guitar. And right. then Renee left, and we got in Debbie to take guitar. Right. And Dulcie and Tish Pascoe. So Debbie only joined the band once we were in Johannesburg. But, you know, everybody went home, and Mike Fuller, had come to the dreaded Mike Fuller, had come to... Actually, he was very good for me in the beginning of my career. He had come to see us at that audition, and he'd given me a card. It's amazing how life works. He'd given me a card and said, if you ever are looking, if you ever come to Johannesburg, if you ever whatever, here's my card. And for some unknown reason, my sister kept it. You know, the universe. And when the band broke up and, you know, we parted ways with Eddie because it wasn't viable. I mean, Mm. Eddie's a fabulous man, but he wasn't band management material, you know. And admittedly, he doesn't have much to work with. My father was then saying, right, you got to come home. You can't sign a contract. You're underage to sign a contract. You're underage. You're coming home. I remember that my sister said, phone that guy, this guy. I've kept his number. And I phoned Fuller and he remembered who I was. And I said, can we come and see you? And he said, yes. And he took us under his wing. He did a lot of good. He stood at our sides. He was exactly what a management was. You know, I mean, he did his thesis at university in, in band management. And he was, by all intents and purposes, a really good management. Mm-hmm. But the band, you know, Tish was then missing her husband and her children because I was much younger than all of them. Debbie sort of was wanting to go back into teaching. It just kind of disintegrated to my absolute fear. And Mike said to me, let it go. There are bigger things and better things that I have planned for you. That was when I was 18. And was that where you met the guys from Hotline? Yep. He said, we're going to see this band on Saturday, on Saturday afternoon, who I think will be a great band for you to, you know, to, to front. It was at the Germiston Hotel, and I walked into this band playing ACDC and... Fuck and Metallica, and I wanted to say, are you insane? This is, I like rock music, not heavy metal Mm. and heavy Mm. rock. I said to him, Mike, they're a rock band. He said, don't worry about that, don't worry about that. Just get, what what do you get from the energy from them? I was like, I'm 18, what do I know about energy? (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, really, what a stupid question. And and, and I said, and plus they've got a singer. They said, don't worry, I'll take care of that. So I was like, shame, this poor dude's going to lose his job. I'm going to stand. I don't even know what. But, but, you know, those were the days. And, and I think that they still are when you're young and you badly want something. And somebody comes along who does know what they're doing. I mean, Mike had been involved with Rabbit, Margaret Singana, Clout. He had a, a number of successes under his belt. Within a week, the poor bloody singer had been fired. I'd gone in. I'd, I'd been writing. And I've been playing the guitar and writing from when I was 12. And You're So Good To Me was part of that. Was part oh, of so that you wrote that quite early. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote that song. I mean, the wisdom that I had, if I'd followed the words that I wrote when I was like 16 years old, 17 years old, yeah, no, I wrote that. that was already in my so catalogue of five songs, you know, that I played to Mike. And he said, we're going to record this song. And I was like, yeah, 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 right. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It really happened quickly for me. Don't be angry when you hear what I've got to say. You ask the truth, so here it really is. You ask me if there would be a tiny possibility to be alone one night, just you and me. I'm not supposed to be alone with you I'm not supposed to be in love with you But I am Oh baby, baby You're so good to me And 
Jim Slip to Hotline, and we played uh, at the Germiston Hotel to Bikers on a Saturday afternoon, and then five nights. It was lovely. I loved every minute of it. And then we went on to play at Club Med down in Durban for a three-month sellout season. And I mean, that club took a thousand people. We used to, they used to, we felt like the Beatles. They used to queue around the corners. And then suddenly, You're So Good to Me was on Easter Zulu. You know, Radio Zulu, and we were playing in Soweto on Republic Day. So did it trigger in black radio first? Yeah, long before. I think Five played it for a bit, but, you know, it was it triggered in SA, at the SABC. You know, there was no independent radio. So, so You're So Good to Me triggered. It was Kansas City and VVO that picked up on that song, and they said, no, bugger this regime, we're going to play. Because... Radio Zulu just played Issa Zulu. Kosa played Kosa. The Afrikaners played Afrikaans. Remember, we had those shit versions of Springbok hits. Correct. Because of the cultural boycott. So we had to redo everything. That was it. It's amazing because let's set the scene. I mean, the early to mid-80s, it was a very volatile and turbulent time in this country. Completely. I mean, it, we were invited to play. It was the 31st of May, 1983. And we were invited to play at the Jabalani Amphitheatre at a Radio Zulu concert, which was, of course, Radio Zulu was under the auspices of the state as well. Sure. I mean, all the people that worked, apart from the Zulu-speaking DJs, everyone at the top was white at Radio Zulu. We went in and performed, and that's when I was given the name Tandeka. I mean, it was, it was, it was two years before Jabalani. It was based on You're So Good To Me. And then everybody sat up and thought, who is this group? Well, I mean, Hotland was the first... I put it in, in context: all white band, yeah, rock and roll band, yeah. Rock, we, that's exactly what we were. We were, we were a rock and roll band, and we never weren't. If you listen to the Hotline stuff, and if you listen, I mean, if you listen to what Alistair did with the guitar, Alistair ne- never stopped. There was never a, a not a big solid because what we cottoned onto was, you know, when we had to look for songs at that concert. Crossover songs, of which, of course, there were none. Mm. We went searching, and their songs that were huge in the townships were songs like Hold the Line by Toto, mm. Joan Jett. That kind of syncopated. Mm. That kind of stuff. And that was huge, and it was because it was a riff. It was a rhythmic on the 4-4, on the and it worked. George was a unique bass player. George was Afrikaans. There's a very, very, if you listen to Jabalani and you listen to some black music, I mean, if you listen to it, Jabalani could quite easily be done by an Afrikaans band doing Tiki Dry. Mm. You know, it's rain 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 So it was this weird, honest combination of it was uncrafted, it was unplanned. And certainly, if I did it all again, I would do it the same way because I never changed my voice. I mean, I know that you always wanted me to do the quintessential rock blues, and I'm going to do that. You know, I'm going Good, to do I'm that. Glad to I, hear I'm that. singing better than I've ever sang, and I'm singing higher than I've ever sung. Well, not, not that that counts, but, you know, I still do Joplin on stage, and peace of my heart goes down like a storm in the townships, you know, if I want to add it to the, the gig. But that period was also a very rich period for South African music. Absolutely. Avoid, you had Via Africa, you had Bright Blue. Yeah, Wendy uh, Oldfield, the Elemental Sweat Band. Unbelievable. And everybody had this wonderful space within South African music. And Hotline came along and they were different. We were very different. Because whereas Avoid and Via Africa had African influences Mm. in it, you went full bore. People often ask how I've lasted, and I, I think it's because, first of all, I find it, I've got like a fraud light that goes off, and so I think I am an authentic person. I like to think that I am. I think that there was, I loved Avoider. Yes, mm. I loved that band. I went to see them. I, I was like a groupie. I loved Renee Feltzman. Renee Feltzman, yeah. I loved her voice so much. Mm. Renee was a big influence on me. I wanted to be like her. I thought she was like the coolest fucking chick on the planet. Those bands... I remember seeing Via Africa in, in Soweto, and they rocked that stadium, mm. let me tell you. They're not avoid, but Via Africa, it was la 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 Land Rover. I mean, you know, all of that kind of stuff, it really pumped. The first album, Burnout. Yes. Um, 
came out in 81 was pretty much an out-and-out rock album. But Completely. You know, out of the blocks, we go back to You're So Good To Me. You have this massive hit. Yeah. I was going to ask you, was that autobiographical? But clearly not, because it was written when you were very young. Yeah, it was written when I was very, <laughs> extremely young. I, was, I wrote that, you know, I think with my writing, and I think that's why I've managed to, to write. I, I, I read about the man building. I read all of that stuff when I was very young. And I realized that whilst songwriting is a gift and it's also inspiration-based, it's also discipline, mm. I try to sit with my guitar I mean, I've had a five-year hiatus where I haven't, but I've had been busy doing other things. But I've just started writing again in the same way that I did, which was I'd sit down with my guitar at 9 o'clock. And if nothing came by 10 o'clock, that was cool. I didn't panic. I went. But invariably by 10, there was something coming. And then I would, then I would get locked in and write sometimes until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. because I made it a discipline as well as a craft. That had ridiculous songs on it, if I think about it now. Mm. You know, it's a very strong. Um, I mean, Burnout so- was a hit. It Burnout was a was hit, and then the black market as well. Right. What does that first hit feel like? Ah, uh, you know, regrets. Huh. My biggest regret is that I didn't savor those moments. Mm. I was so focused, and I was so parat. I hadn't had a drink. I made up for it later, but I, I hadn't had a drink. I wouldn't drink. I wouldn't smoke. I wouldn't do anything. I was obsessed was going to bed looking after my voice. I was like a horse with blinkers in those. I was like the absolute opposite of what you imagined somebody in my position newly successful to behave like. I was like, I'm not letting this go. I'm going to hold on to this for dear life. And um, so I missed it because all I did was think about how I could write the next one. And when you're driving now and you switch on radio, because it still gets played, and you hear it, how does that make you feel when you hear that song? Benji, I don't like listening to my own voice. But I have to say that when I did the re-recordings of... My catalogue is huge. It's Mm. over 150 songs, you know, 100 of which are recorded. But when I chose the 26 big ones that had been hits, I remember going to bed one night and going, you're not so bad. You have achieved quite a bit in your life. Because I've battled with that in my whole life. I've battled with not being good enough and, and still do. But w- then I felt proud when I re-recorded that, you know. The next big thing, of course, was Feel So Strong. Yeah, that was Steve. the next big one, yeah. How did that come about, that song? I remember hearing... Malcolm Watson, I guess I'm going to be okay. Mm. I get, remember he was writing those songs for Steve. Right. And I heard Raising My Family. A lot of people don't like pop music. I happen to really respect pop music because it's very, very easy to sit down and write something completely flipping avant-garde. You know, it's very difficult to sit down and write something that somebody's going to walk out and remember mm. after the first oh, time yeah, they've absolutely. heard it. You know, that's, that's the challenge for me. I wanted to do something. And when I heard Steve's voice, I just was, for me, he was an African Stevie Wonder. Mm, I agree with you. It was, it was glorious for me because I just thought, oh, God. And I said to Mike, I said, Mike, I want to go and see this guy. He's doing a show at the Coliseum. And we went to see him. And I said, I, I, I want to write a song for myself and this guy. So we went backstage. I met his people, his team. They were very approachable. And Steve and I got on from day one. He didn't only talk about music, which is what irritated me about mixing in musical circles. Mm. He had other things to talk about, you know. He was a very bright man. And he was aware of what was going on in the world on a global scale. And I've always been a curious person that likes to know what's happening in the world. And so we got on extremely well. And I said, listen, if I write a song for us, will you do it with me? And he just said to me, why not? It was before the days that there was so much ego, there was so much, you know, I look around at these little pipsqueaks walking around now with all this fame and all this flash and everything, and I want to say, you know, if you quantified the talent of those 80s, 90s, and I'm not going around mem- down memory lane mm. thinking that there's no talent. I love working with young people and constantly do because I like to be kept on my toes. If you think of those days, and you know, sure. you were there, you know, r- right next to me with something either. I don't know what we would get uh, getting up to, but, <laughs> but, but you know, it was so incredibly, but I was young and I wrote Feel So Strong and he loved it. 
But the SABC wouldn't pass it. It was the first time that a black and white person had sung together. I had to change the word because I wrote, I never thought I'd find a love quite like you. I had to change it to friend. I wasn't allowed to say love. Cross that out, you know. So you actually had to be quite clever, which is more than you have to be now. Because you now you can't just say, well, fuck this and fuck that. You mm. actually have to be quite clever. And I had to say, I never thought you... I didn't say, I, I never thought you loved me, but you do. I had to say, I never thought you cared so much, but you do. I mean, this is 1982, is it? Yeah. 1982. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it was quite revolutionary for you to do this. It was completely revolutionary. Yeah. You're so good to me. Going into Soweto was in 83. Right. The 31st of May, because that's when I was given the name Tandeka. Right. Then very soon out the box after that came Feel So Strong. Okay. And so, yes, it was extremely, you know, we, we the, the light was, uh, the light was on, you know. There had been the 76 riots. There was no going back from where we were. The Hurd Crocodile was starting to negotiate with Nelson Mandela mm. in prison. Things had started to, to roll. To roll, yeah. And, uh, and yet they were so obsessed. The, the fear, you know, must have been enormous because, you know, everything's fueled by fear or lack of. Mm. And they were just so scared. And so they cha- I had to change all those lyrics. And when we did the video, we looked like Stephen High had, had no arms because we joined ha- hands at the end of the video. We didn't touch each other through the whole video. But we had joined hands and put our hands above our heads, just in a celebratory how you end something. Yep. Not a black power salute, not anything. And they chopped our arm off, so we were chopped off. Picture, I'm trying to paint a picture for the listener. There was, uh, we were chopped off, you know, just above the sure. elbow. So we both looked like this sort of armless you know, singers. But it happened and it was huge. And then that took us around the world, you know. It was it was huge in Germany. It was on the British charts. It was we did Italy. Yeah, we had a we had a we were on Music Laden with I remember Rod Stewart was in the caravan next to me. I was more excited than about that than being on Music Laden. Right. So the band just took off and we had we had an enormous amount of luck, success, right time, right place. Good management. It was amazing. Yesterday, you took me by the Mike made a bumper sticker called Help Hotline. And we just thought, oh, come on. Can you not come up with something a little better? By then we were getting pissed off with him because we knew how much he was raking. And oh, he was yeah. taking cash like you cannot believe. And we were like toch laborers going and collecting our, our money in envelopes and cash with no receipt or no whatever. Our royalties were arriving in, in our bank accounts from his wife's bank account. 
you know, because Mike signed us up as management, publishing and the record company. So he would negotiate with himself the best deal he could get from the record company for the artists as the manager. I mean, it's absurd. I want to talk a little bit about that later. As a hardcore Beatles fan, that version of Help is my favourite version of that song outside of Lennon and McCartney's version. Well, thank you, because so many people thought that Tina Turner did it before me, but she didn't. She did it long after me. It's an amazing track. At that point, you were still doing quite a bit of rock on, on the oh, albums, yes. you know. Uh, yeah. But then Music for Africa, which followed that, seems yes. to be where you started to change to a more Afro-pop well, Yeah, kind it of... was more Afro-pop, but I started to listen, strangely enough, and I've never told anyone this, but I was then starting to listen to old records of my sister's because she threw out of all her vinyls, much to your, well, judging from your T-shirt, you'd have a heart attack. And she had a whole lot of old armor trading stuff. I completely plagiarized. Work music for Africa is don't, don't, music for Africa. But the, the bass line goes don't, don't. You got to say something special. You say good things come from the past. I'm a trading. I, I, that bass line, that riff, mm. because I knew that I had to have riffs, and that was Hotline Success, is we had riffs, riffs all the time. With the, with keyboard. So, yeah, Music for Africa, we incorporated a more pop sound because I wanted my solo stuff to sound different from hotlines which it was which it was yeah it was very but different. then in 84 hotline hit the mother load was yes. yeah i mean it was just boom 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 we just couldn't do a thing wrong it was crazy that was just god i've had a love-hate relationship with that song <laughs> i go i go through periods of loving it and i've gone through a long period of loving it now in the last sort of three years because i see the joy it brings people mm. And now doing, I'm, do, I'm doing a lot of work in the UK and a lot of singing in the UK. I can do just a whole lot of stuff. And I do Jabalani and there's a whole lot of Brits going, Jabalani. <laughs> and they're all dancing to it. And it's fascinating. Last night, actually. Yeah, me and my prison uniform. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you look back at those videos, you look at all pop videos from yeah. that period. They're and all, that mullet. They're really cheesy. Was that billed as PJ Powers and Hotline? Yeah. What yeah. was happening there? You know, Hotline was a, a bit like the Beatles. I'm not being like you two and saying we were the greatest rock and roll band in the world, but we were short. 
there was if people think that the Beatles were there forever, Mm-mm. Hotline was there for a very very short space of time. We were together for six years. Mm. Mike Fuller saw the writing on the wall. You know, George was talking about wanting to win a green card. You know, the guys were older than me. Mm. They wanted to not Alistair and not Burns, but George was you know looking to. He'd written Jabalani, which was a mother of a song. And I think he sort of thought, okay, now I'm going to go to America and become a huge, you know, hit songwriter. And, of course, you've got to have a couple of hits in your own country before you're taken seriously anywhere else. When I think that doing a solo album, which I think this must be in every situation, they got nervous and everybody kind of got on edge because by the time we recorded the Jabalani album, we were in litigation with Mike already, trying to increase our royalties from the all five of us sharing 5%, and we managed to get it up to five of us sharing 6% on that album. Wow. I mean, the band were in the top echelon at that point. You know, right? I'm not the greatest singer. I don't think that... I think Alistair was the best guitarist in this country, without a doubt. Uh, you know, great player. But, yeah. Larry was a bit like Ringo Starr. He, he had a different way of drumming. He wasn't a great drummer, but he was different. Mm. And Bones was, Bones was just, when I listen to the genius of Bones on those tracks, it's like, wow. Well, everyone speaks of Bones like it. I mean, Cindy Alter, who I spoke to, he was it. also talks about mm. how special he was. I'm intrigued how a white band crosses over completely in the township. I don't think anyone's done it. Not even Johnny crossed over to the extent pop-wise that you did no johnny johnny uh, johnny did a weird thing and i i never had this conversation with him but i often wondered why johnny well we were on all of those joy jaluka hotline shows and the mm. lion lager road shows and all those kind of things and the minute him and sipo and jaluka had some success and they got Bocky de beer in and then gary he formed savuka and savuka nobody knows you say the word Savuka in a township no. today and nobody will know it. Johnny's audiences for the last 30 years of his career were white mm, yeah. in South Africa. Right. You know, obviously Very abroad. Much so, yeah. But they were white. I used to think, I, wa- I wonder if you miss, because my God, I would have missed not playing in the townships. Mm. And it was so wild and it was right up my street. Why do you think they embraced you that, that intensely? I do not know. I mean, the songs were great. But, yeah, but, uh, but there's a lot of great songs. I think that I didn't have bodyguards around me. I, just, I didn't think... You know, my parents made me very, very aware. I, there was a bell on our table at dinner, you know. I remember picking it up to ring it once, and my father, who'd never laid a hand on me, slapped it out of my hand, and he said, when you can afford to pay somebody, you can ring that bell. So we were taught at a very young age and because I grew up on a farm black people have always been a part of my life Mm. they taught me so much about honesty and about the value a good value system I didn't learn that at my posh white school I learned my value system from poor black people 1985 hotline joined the cream of South (laughs) African talent a concert in the park the live version of Jive Mama is one of the highlights yeah. of, the, of that show. What do you remember of that day? I remember thinking that that 702 were off their heads. And I remember thinking, this is never going to work. You must remember that I, by then, was spending every weekend in the townships. And I thought, if you're going to get the, you think these dudes are going to come into Ellis Park, into a place where they're not allowed to come, and come out of where they've been shoved and support... I thought, it's a pap dream. We're going to have 10,000 people in Ellis Park. You know, I was used to playing to 60,000 people every weekend. Mm. And when I arrived at the stadium, I realised I was wrong. And I was so wrong that eventually they just opened the turnstiles and there were 100,000 people. I remember coming out of our suite and being able to look over onto the field in one of the boxes. And I just remember thinking, shit. That's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I just, I do. I, and I went into, like, I'm terribly nervous before I perform. I'm quite nervous as a human being. I, I shat myself. Terrifying. Why do you think that it was so successful in bringing people to there in, in, in a time of strife? I mean, 85, the townships were burning in 85. When Nelson Mandela was released from prison, him and I sat and he said, music is the velvet glove that delivers your messages of pain, politics and protest in a way 
that no spoken word will ever, ever do. I think what it was, and this is why it would be so glorious to, to reignite that candle, is I think people had had enough. And for me, the hope that's at the end of our tunnel right now, we've got a small window of hope. But I believe that in 1985, everyone in this country was absolutely sick and tired. And we, this is where the people shall govern, we wanted to change subconsciously. Mm. We wanted the status quo. We wanted the sh- the, a paradigm shift. We wanted everything to change. I think that collectively we really did. And I think that's why there were no incidents of violence. When I look slowly through that concert, I guess just get tears in my eyes because mm. I look at what we are. We are still that nation. That's who we are. We're still those people. Nobody hates each other. roughly three to four years, same as the Vietnam War. Absolutely. Crosby, Stills and Nash and all of them. Music changed and conscientized. Completely, completely. It changed. the. And then there was the other one. Remember, there were two. Yeah. There was a second one that was also hugely powerful and hugely successful. But not as big as the first one. the first one was it. So then we have Wasani, Current, Jive, album, tour, album, tour, album, tour. Did you feel you were on a bit of a hamster wheel at that point with the band? I was writing two albums a year, right. you know, because I wrote all of the hotline stuff. I was writing all my PGA Power stuff. I, that's what I do. I write. So I didn't really feel that it was too much pressure. I was the last man standing in hotline. My loyalty, and I was terribly sad when um, we did our last show. I almost wish it hadn't happened that way because hotline then, we, we lost George, we replaced you know, George, and it kind of fizzled because mm. our last album, which Mike forced us to do, which was an album called Jive, was absolutely hideous. It was a waste of the material it was printed on. The songs were shit. I wrote a selection of the worst songs I've ever written, and it was you could hear it, it was a grudge delivery. You know, we said, here, here's your last album. So you brought the curtain down mm. on it, but at the same time, you'd, in, in that latter period you'd released two solo albums yes i i had released two and they are very different yes they are they are extremely i mean there is an answer is my biggest selling from a writer's point of view my biggest selling song and that was the title track of my second album and my second solo album were you trying to forge a separate musical identity there I think by then what had happened, Benj, is I hadn't become political, but I knew that I wanted to be more than just a singer. I knew by then that I wanted to use whatever platform I had to try to give the voiceless a voice. And that sounds, like, that sounds quite egotistical, but I really mean that. I, I wanted to, and if I go onto my Facebook, I'm incredibly proud at the messages that I get sent where people, you know, they said, you've, just, you've been so constant in your speaking out for the underdog. I think that was instilled in me when I was little. Don't kick a dog when it's down. And, and you know, the, and if I don't know two tennis players and I'm watching tennis... I'll go for the underdog. I'll go for the dude who's losing. I don't even know his name, but I want him to win. (laughs) I think it's in my nature. Please believe me when I say We have to love each other more than before With each new day 
good songs right. on those albums, which I've taken one or two of them. Like, for example, I wish I could get a copy of Back Again because today, just watching what's going on in Israel, I thought I wrote that on Back Again. There's a track there called The Whole World's Gone Insane, yeah. which was a, quite a big rock song. It was returning to those... I had a big hit on the Shadowland album with Sing Children Sing. Right. It was a really nice one for me. And there was Sitanda Zella and Kululeko off that as well, which was huge. But I I definitely lost my way. What was going on in your life then? Because it was five years until you recorded another album. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. It was five years. I'd gotten rid of Mike um, because he was just... I mean, the amount of theft was just... It was astronomical. It was just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I remember working with Peter Gallo and Shisa Music, and I did something with him, but I did lose my way, without a doubt. I think we all do, as songwriters mm, sure, and artists, sure. at times, careers, musical careers, and I badly lost my way. I wasn't, pretty, I wasn't writing good songs. I don't think I was singing very well. I was in a very destructive relationship, and the person I was with became my management and was taking her children on airplanes, and this was all behind my back and not knowing what was happening. And then what brought my focus back was actually doing a tribute to Janis Joplin, which I did very successfully at, you know, it was nominated for Best Musical, and I did this, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life vocally, but yeah. one of the most rewarding and one of the most glorious things I've ever done. I loved Every moment of doing that song. Because Jan- Janice is Janice is don't hard to mess cover. around with Janice. I'll you tell know, you what. I mean the power the and power, the craziness, the oh, little stuff inside. And and what had happened was Marilyn van Rienen, who is a playwright, she had written a play where I actually spoke to Laura. Uh, Joplin. I spoke to Janice's sister, and I was in contact with people that because I and I researched her because I spoke with her accent. I became the character because I had a stroke in ninety four, beginning of ninety four. But I got my strength back. But what I didn't get back, I, I had no nerve to go on stage. And Marilyn said to me, she said, "Let me write you." a musical where you become someone else, where you don't have to expose yourself as PJ Powers because I became just too nervous and I was a bag of, you know, and Mike was still buggering around and not paying me royalties and it was bad. It was a bad, horrible well, time. Well, you chose the hardest musical ever to do, doing a Janice job. Yeah, no, I, yo, <laughs> after doing bloody, after having a stroke, I really thought Marilyn was going to come back with, like, I don't know, the life and times of Corin Carpenter, <laughs> but where I could sit on a bar stool and go, we've only just begun. <laughs> but uh, she, and Jan, Janice brought me back into focus. Janice also set me on a path um, of no return in terms of, I did my research a little too well, mm. and I I became her, mm. and I, then I couldn't not be her. Can I tell you that two weeks before I left this country to record World in Union in the UK with Ladies with Black Mambazo, I was in a furniture store in Nelspreet, Russell's, your two-year guarantee store. <laughs> I was in Russell's furniture store. And I was saying, I was singing Jabalani and then going, if you buy this lounge suite now, you'll get this lamp for nothing through Lance James and his organization. And then, which, and I was grateful for the money. I had to pay the bills. Sure. And I was in furniture stores for about six months doing these promotions until eventually what happened in that store is there were, there were too many people. And the guy said, please, PJ, you've got to get up my store. Are they going to break the windows? You must remember that I had Jabalani feel so strong. And the black people were incredibly loyal to me. And so these were these free performances in these stores. But like what Tina Turner, what happened with McDonald's, say, yeah, very similar. Yeah. And, and he said, please, I'll pay you. Just go. Leave. I can't bear it. I can't have you in the store anymore. I left. That was on a Saturday, and on the Tuesday, I got a call from Nelson Mandela's office saying, would I represent South Africa at the Rugby World Cup with Ladies with Black Mambazo? I was like, would I? Hello. I didn't realise what a huge political move it was going to be and how it was going to change the country and what a, a beacon of hope that whole month, everything, you know. And I went over to the UK, and that just took me from being in furniture stores with no money and seriously, knowing like the price of a tin of baked beans to being 
right at globally. back to where globally. And that version, your version of that, yeah, has to is the one. Time. Yeah, yeah, is the one version because many people have done it. Yes, but but that version is that still version resonates. Is down, yeah, I mean, why they do you think v- it's so iconic and timeless? I, I, I think it's because honestly, is because I think the power, if. That Charlie Scarbeck got out of that, he really captured the essence of, you know, it makes me laugh when we've got MP playing, not not laugh in a horrible way, but he captured that, and and he captured that. It's an it starts off, you know, and and bearing in mind that the track that I got to learn was Kerry Takanawa, who had done it, going there's a dream. Oh my word! I said this. I got the wrong singer. He said, "Just learn the words," <laughs> and and it was it it was because I like to think my voice had something to do with it because it was it was right up my alley. It was a big ballad, really, and that's yeah. what I am. I'm a big ballad singer. I love those big ballads, and I like to think it was that. Ladies with Black Mambazo were the flavor of the month, but it's it's still retained. It's it's got that pulse going under mm. it. It's just you know what happened in that World Cup. Every single element was sewn up. Mm. It became Everything came together. And easily. Don't you wish you had written that? <laughs> no. So it rejuvenated your career, though. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. In, in, mm. in a big way. Um, in, in the late 80s, you, you, you got a lot of flack for performing with Miriam and Harry Belafonte in yeah. Zimbabwe. And I think it's a matter of public record that you champion non-racialism. Uh, throughout your career and sure. human rights in South Africa. I do champion justice, and I yeah. still do, and I still will, against the present regime. Do you think artists have a moral obligation to speak out against injustice? I think that artists that don't are losing out. I think that artists that don't are irresponsible. I'm the patron of albinism in Africa, who, I mean, they really must be the most marginalised human beings on the planet. I can't imagine having a platform and not trying to do some good. I, I, I think you're a useless piece of shit if you have a huge platform and you don't choose to do to speak up against injustice. And what a platform. I mean, you've, your checklist is amazing. Performing for the Queen, the real Queen. Did you meet her, by the way? Yes, of course. Did yeah. you curse I did. I is did. it like rock star vibe? When you, you know, I am a royalist. I am incredibly pro what they give to the country and right. the stability that they bring the United Kingdom and the belonging, the sense right. of belonging. And we could do with a bit of that feeling of a sense of belonging yeah you know what I mean we could do with something that we could aspire to be and um and she was a brilliant woman but I do remember thinking to myself how can somebody so short and so as she was walking along the line to meet me I was I was more nervous to meet her I suppose you see with Nelson Mandela I'd had communication Mm. from prison Mm. with him but but I was I was equally in awe to meet her not from the point of, I mean, obviously I was more in awe to meet Nelson Mandela, but she looks at you and she knows your name. She knows what you've done. That woman has accessed more of her brain than any other human being on the planet did. You've played with Clapton. You've yeah. played with John oh, what a lovely, Trading, Yuma Sakela. Uh, you've played for Richard Attenborough, Huma, uh, European kings and queens, our own Madiba, who once said this about you. You have made a tremendous impact both on and off the stage, and you are one of those young people on whom the country pins so much hope, that must be equally inspiring and engaging for you. It definitely was. Madiba picked me up at a time when I was very low, when I came back to South Africa and I'd been banned after that same concert in Zimbabwe. And he he really picked me up. I owed a lot to him and owe a lot to him, but he sits very firmly in a place in my heart, as I'm sure he does in all of ours. Yeah, definitely. 2.14, you release your first book, um, yeah. Here okay. I Am, which details your life and career in a, in a, a very personal way. Yes. And, and, and funny and also poignant. Part of it deals with your struggle yes. with alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. How did that addiction manifest itself and what kind of impact did it have on your life and your career? My story is different from... From others in that I had supportive people in my life 
I never felt alone. But I got into a destructive relationship. Really, really hotshot business person who was the head of the International Marketing Council of South Africa, a position chosen by Tabo Mbeki. I felt inferior. Um, I felt like I'd achieved something. She was the CEO of this enormous, huge, huge company. And I was I was fearful. I used to, we know, you and I know, how one used to jaw. And all of those days were fun days. They were, they were out of control days. But I don't think that I was an addict at that point. Mm. I think I became an addict when I started to drink to have fun as opposed to when I was having fun. Mm. And I drank to escape. I drank to face when she was coming home. I, I, I would face, I would pour a scotch or two, and it was all for the wrong reasons. You know, under normal mm. circumstances, it would be when I, I, I drink when I got to a party, not before I got to a party, you know. Maybe when I was putting on my makeup, I'd have some music on and, you know. But it was a personal, it was my personal life that drove me to cross that, that invisible line from from having a really good time and from loving you know something to to needing something and becoming this desperate common garden variety drunk you know and how did you find redemption uh five rehabs later they didn't work i my sister stood by me she i did 19 days 90 meetings in 90 days Priscilla came to all of them with me i had a wonderful wonderful sponsor um, Graham Butchart, who um, has unfortunately passed during COVID. And he was, he was really, I believe he saved my life um, because I was, I was in a bad, bad, bad way. I mean, I slept for a year. My sister used to bath me and, and I couldn't eat. I ate jelly and slept for a year. Well, I sobered up, and then I started to have, like, sort of bouts of sobriety, and then I'd fall off the wagon and whatever. And, but I knew then that I had a huge problem, but sort of 2006 maybe, and then I sobered up in 2009. You have released the album, aptly titled Rightfully Mine. Rightfully Mine. This Thank year, you. which finds you revisiting both your hotline and solo hits. What motivated you to do this? Uh, the, Taylor Swift did it recently. Yes. Uh, um, Brave lady who I really appreciate and respect. She battled uh, her manager, mm. uh, um, Scooter Braun. Is it a need to reclaim your work back? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I, I have, I've, I've tried and spent hundreds of thousands of rand to try and get to try and make Mike understand that I, I need to own my own publishing. Mm. And, and the worst thing about it is he's never done anything with my catalogue. You know, he's never no. done anything. He's just, it's mine. I've got it. I'm not going to share it. I'm not going to give it to anyone. You know, I mean, and also I, never, I don't even know what my publishing contract look, looks like. You know, I have no idea. All I know is that I've earned no money. I, I didn't earn one cent of performance royalties for World and Union. So put me back. From a, 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 a point of view, but I, just, I didn't earn any money from it. I mean, I earned from live work, and I, sure. I, I'm not going to complain about what I managed to, you know, and still do. But he was just, he, 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 he it's unbelievable. He's, the, he's just one of the most immoral human beings on the planet. Couldn't get him to court. He kept saying he was either sick or this one died or that one died or this, and he just kept delaying, 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 knowing, of course, that I'd run out of money because I made him a lot of money. Benji, I made him a lot of money. I just thought, actually, I want to own my big songs. I want to own the songs that I'm really proud of. And, um, and, and next year I'll probably dig, I'll go to Pool B and I'll grab another 26 of them. And, and put, I want to own my own stuff. Well, I must say, it sounds amazing. I mean, well, thank oh, you so much. With the same passion and emotion that, that were on the originals, but with better production and I, vocal. Well, I, it, there is a better vocal. Yeah, hey? definitely. I'm yeah. so happy that you say that because people say, but have you done it all in the same key? And I said, yes, actually. Listen, there's a blessing in everything. Me giving up a drinking made me give up smoking. I mean, I only smoked if I was pissed, you know, yeah. And so so none of it. And my voice is in in brilliant, brilliant condition. So now you need to get the message out to product placement companies and agencies that these versions are available and they're there for licensing. Yeah. Because that's where the money is. That's That's what John is busy working on now. What's your take on the AI thing? It's a very dangerous, dangerous area. Can you do AI without 
originally having a a voice. I don't know. I know that Gabby LaRue has just, you know, in Calicutta, he's just released this guy called Jungle Man, I think, or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, with an AI voice on it. You know, I know what digital has the pros and cons of digital. I don't think we are yet at a point where we can say that financially for musicians, the pros outweigh the cons. Mm. I think we'll get there, but YouTube needs to start coughing. And there's a hell of a lot of other uh, other platforms that all need to start paying up properly. Mm. And we need to start forming. We need the big artists need to start like, you know, I know that Adele's causing trouble with Spotify at the moment. And we need that. We need the Taylor Swifts. We need these people to say, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. You're not going to play that. We don't need the Jay-Z's of the world who go and form his own one. I think we'll get to a point where the pros outweigh the cons, but I don't think we're there yet. It's quite frightening. I mean, I watched a a thing on Sky News uh, the day before yesterday of Korean pop. Mm, I'm writing K-pop. Oh, you're writing K-pop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was virtual. It was AI. It was. The the band of five girls does not exist. They look and sing and it looks perfect, but it's not real. It's frightening. Yeah, you know, we human beings think we're so clever. Put men on the moon, we can create pop bands that aren't there. But we can't stop a war. We can't feel for each other. We can't stop hunger. And it's all, that is all within our reach. What's next for PJ Powers? Ah, lots and lots. And well, immediately I leave for them, the people living with albinism, there's a pageant that's happening and drawing, shining the torch on that. I release my book at the Hay Festival in the UK at the end of May. That's an re- updated, revised it's an, version. I, uh, yes, it's an updated. And it's, it's been UKized. If you, if, not that it's been changed, but I've had to sort of, it's, you know, if I talk about, if I talk about a poikikos, I mean, not that I do, but if I talk about a kraal or if I talk about, the, you know, things that are very familiar to us. Right. I've got to, you know, all the anglicize asterisks I've yeah. got. I've got to anglicise it. I haven't anglicised it. I've had to, we've had to add, I publish, my publisher had to add maps, draw the timeline. So it's been quite okay. a, a big exercise. So it'll be out at the end of May and then I will tour the UK um, with the book for June and then I'll do the musical. Um, I've got seven gigs in the UK in July. My movie's coming out next year, which is my biography. So that's, I'm very excited about that. Documentary? Yeah, yeah it's a 90-minute documentary. Oh, cool. Yes. Then I want to, on the other, other side of things, I am um, doing, um, I, I don't like to call it life coaching because I'm not, but I've, I've learned a lot, <laughs> haven't we? <laughs> In this, and I, I, I'm doing um, some, some guidance. I'm doing some uh, one-on-one coaching. I'm also doing um, blue-collar Getting people to, you know, the power of appreciation is one of my projects that I, that I've got going in, in a, quite a couple of major corporates, which I enjoy doing. You know, it's right. something, two keynote speeches that I'm doing and building that part of, uh, and trying to sort of spread the assets, you know, um, and and broaden my assets and and use more of my brain. I think my biggest fear in my life is not to keep using as much as I can of my brain because I don't want to go off my head. And <laughs> so I want to I want to do lots and learn new things, you know. Always moving forward, yeah, PJ. Yeah, yeah, I want to learn some I want to learn new things. PJ's wonderful new album, Rightfully Mine, is available on all streaming platforms. And a book Here I Am is available on Amazon. Locally, are there hard copies still available? Uh no. I think it's that if I was gonna tell anyone I would say wait. Just wait for, for the new uh, one. Yeah, wait for the new one. BJ, we've known each other for a long a time. A very long time, Benji, and I'm not going to tell anyone out there what <laughs> Got gotten up, up to. to. <laughs> but I think it's the first time we've actually sat down and had a real tunardering, you know. Yeah, I think it um, I, I As think, I say. Yeah. I was terrified of you. You were like the most important person in the country when it came to music. <laughs> I mean, Benji Moody was like, I was like, oh, my God, I hope, I don't go, I hope he doesn't come see one of my concerts. Maybe I'm going to sing out a tune. But, um, you know, it was a... I was very nervous of, you know, and I'm actually by nature quite a shy person, Mm. which I think people find difficult to understand. Surprisingly so am I. 
I'm an introvert with extrovert qualities. That's what I am. That's why I think we get on because we're both yeah. exactly the yeah. same. Thanks for journeying with us, BJ. Thank you, Benji. Help us to put the best behind us. All songs used by kind permission of PJ Powell's from the album Rightfully Mine, available on all streaming and download platforms. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.